Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 3. We're starting at verse 10 and going through verse 28. So if you brought a Bible with you, if you turn there as we read, or if you don't have one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Or if you want to simply sit and uh, listen to the Word of God. Romans chapter 3, we're starting at verse 10 to verse 28. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of viper is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had let the sins committed beforehand unpunished He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Would you pray with me? Father, the world thinks that they can get to heaven by how many good deeds they do. And the Jews, after you gave them the law, just assumed that somehow by keeping all of that, they could earn heaven as well. But you said you made it as a schoolmaster, as something just to show us how sinful we really were and that we could not possibly earn your salvation, that there had to be another way. And then you sent your son Jesus to show that way and be that way. I thank you for my salvation, for the fact that it's not based on anything I do, anything I've ever done, anything about me, but on on what Jesus did on that cross, my simple faith in in what has been done, and your calling, your choosing, your saving me and bringing me to yourself. 
pray that each of us, as we listen this morning, would be reminded of what we have in you, of how gracious you have been, of how amazing your grace and mercy and salvation are. And if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, that doesn't understand, hasn't yet realized their sinfulness and their need of a Savior, that this morning your Holy Spirit would show them, would open their heart, reveal to them that it is by grace through faith in you that they will be saved and that they have the opportunity to have eternal life just by accepting the gift that you made on that cross. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you all on this Lord's Day. Time to be together, to worship, to sing to the Lord, to fellowship, and to hear the Word of God. My son, uh, I talk to him quite frequently, this is his first day in looking for a new church. He's been in Houston for, I don't know, 10, 12 years, and uh, he spent his last Sunday at this other church, and today's his first day looking for a new church, and the reason is because they got a new pastor, and this pastor, and I've talked at length with him about this, I won't go into the details, but just not properly teaching the Word of God, and that's, you know, pretty sobering, and he actually went to the pastor and explained why and gave all these examples, because we need to be churches that are like that, teaching the Word of God, and so then he said, well, here's a, he sends me all these links to other churches, so yesterday I spent a couple hours listening to other pastors, and it's so interesting, other churches out there, you know, this other guy that's teaching the Word, and, and, and one was more of a teacher, and he'd always be talking about beloved, he called it, which is a good thing, calling the congregation beloved, and, and the other one was more of an exhorter, you know, and he says, we're a community, you know, and it, it just struck me because the flavor of churches is different all over the world. You know, you come to Bethel's church here afterwards, you know, that's a different flavor. But the main point, the main center, center point of each church should be the fact that Lord God is the center and Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior and you preach the gospel. That's what it should be. That's, that's, that's the way God then builds the church. And so we've been taking this time to talk about the gospel. Look at the fast, last few weeks of what Jesus said about the gospel. And we've been going through the gospels, particularly Luke and now John today, and to see what Jesus says about this gospel message. And there is no doubt that it is the singular, most important message there is, the gospel. And it's, imp- it's necessary for us to understand it. And, and what intrigues me as we've been going through these verses, there's so many different aspects of the gospel that he wants to understand. So we continue on, and we got this week and maybe a couple more after this to talk about this gospel message. Mark 1.15, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What a great verse. We're not going to talk about it, but that's, that's how Jesus thought. The last time, again, we looked at passages in Luke, and today we'll look at a couple more, then we'll move into the gospel of John. I want you to turn to first Luke chapter 19, Luke 19, 1 through 10. I can't help but think you know most of these stories have read them, but I just want to work through this passage, another passage in Luke. Luke 19, verse, verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief 
tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. He hurried and came down, received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to the guest of a man who's a sinner. Not gone to be a guest, the guest of a man who's a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of all my possessions I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. But the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. A number of things here. First, we see this, there's a Zacchaeus. And clearly, he's a man who God wanted to save. We talked about this the last couple of weeks, about how God chooses way, way, way back in eternity past who he wants to save. He predestines them. He foreknows them. He then, during their life on earth, calls them and actively works in their heart until they then are saved, till they are then born again. That's what he does. And that's what we see here. It's obvious. It's obvious that, that God had been working in the heart of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Most tax collectors back then were very, very unrighteous. And that's because they were overcharging the Jews in particular, for taxes, overcharging. And, and, and therefore, as it says here, they were very, very rich, and also they were very, very unliked. In fact, I would say they were one of the most hated people in Israel at the time, these tax collectors. So Zacchaeus then, Jesus sees Zacchaeus in the tree, and, and, and he initiates with Zacchaeus, says, you must come down you know, you must come down because I want to be at your house today. And so Jesus then is seeking those he wants to save. That's what we clearly see here. And if you're saved, then God, through his spirit, sought you out and worked in your heart to save you. That's what he did. And what's, what, but what's the key response to Jesus? He hurried down from the tree, and he went up to Jesus and received him gladly. It's clear. You can't miss it that Jesus was drawing this man to himself. He had called him to himself. The people who saw what happened, they grumbled. They didn't like this at all. They were upset that this Jesus was reaching out to sinners, and hey, doesn't he know what kind of person this person is here? They didn't understand what Jesus wanted to do. They didn't understand that he wanted to save sinners. As it says here, it's a good word to use for a sinner. He's one who's lost. He's lost. In Luke chapter 5, 32, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. These people then who complained didn't realize their sin. They didn't know that they were lost on their way to hell, that they needed to repent before it was too late. And many of them were self-righteous. They were thinking that their own good works would save them, would make them righteous. And that's how really, and I think Steve alluded to this this morning, just, just talking, that many, many people, in fact, probably most people, think of themselves as being self-righteous. They think that, hey, my good works are going to save me. That's what's going to do it. And they're putting their trust in themselves and their good works. I mentioned this verse here, and I love these verses on faith and trust. Proverbs 28, 25, and 26. He who trusts in the Lord will prosper, but he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. The key then is to have faith in Christ for salvation. That's what we're talking about. Verse 8 of, 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 of Luke 19. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possession I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. That Zacchaeus 
wanted to make restitution like this, it's clear then that God had saved his soul. We, we don't know exactly. One doesn't give us all the details here, but we know that. I mean, he's a changed man. And, and that he not only wanted to give back what he defrauded, but four times as much? Wow, that's something. There is no doubt that, that this person was saved. There's no doubt that God was working in his heart. So God did a miraculous work in his heart. He saved Zacchaeus. He made him righteous. And, and when I say that, that last phrase, he saved him. He saved him from his sins, and he made him righteous. He made him a child of God. And it's important when we think about the gospel, these two components. We're delivered from evil. We're saved from our sin, but then we're also, also ones who become a child of God. It's what God takes away, the sin, is what he gives us. It's amazing. So I always think about that. You were a sinner, but now you're saved. And not only that, you're not a sinner, but you're a saint. You're a saint, a holy one of God. Verses 9 and 10 again, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. The son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Salvation means that Zacchaeus was saved. I've said this before, but we understand. Saved from what? Saved from his sin. Saved from death, from eternal death. Saved from hell. Saved from being punished. Saved from the devil. And all who are saved are no longer children of the devil, but children of God. That's important to see that. We don't always talk about this. To think that before you were saved, you were a child of the devil. That all now who are unsaved are children of the devil. But now God made you his child. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. I love these verses, how it sums it up, this point right here. 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 and 10. Verse 8, it says, but the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love nor the one who does not love his brother. And what he's saying there, it's not like, hey, a, a, a Christian is absolutely perfect. That's not true. But in general, we are ones who are practicing righteousness. That's our heart. That's our desire. And that's, in fact, then what we are doing. Jesus said that Zacchaeus was a son of, of Abraham. What we're saying is that Jesus, that this, this Zacchaeus was a, a Jew, physically speaking, but now he was a Jew, spiritually speaking. He was a true Jew. He was a son of Abraham. The verses in Galatians 3 make this point clear. It says, Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham put his faith in God, put his faith in the Savior, and that's why he was righteous. That's why he was saved. And then it goes on to say the next verse. This is verses 6 and 7 of Galatians 3. Be sure, be sure that it is, it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. That's the point. That's what he's saying. You're a son of Abraham because this Zacchaeus then had faith. He put his faith and trust in Christ. That's what's happened. In verse 10, Jesus says that his primary mission is to seek and to save that which is lost. And I like there's two words there, key words, seek, to go after, and to save. The seeking, the, the word in itself sort of implies that it's more of a process. The seeking isn't something that happens at a point in time. The saving does. It's more of a process, and, and I think that you know this, but God wants us to be part of the process as well. I'm going to mention five different little phrases here, keys for, for you, helping you be in ones who are effective with the loss. But the first one is to pray for the loss. Uh, it, says in, it says in Romans 10, when God can testify how I long for the salvation of the Jews. That's Paul. He's praying for the Jews. And, and secondly is the thought of, 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 first of all, praying, and secondly, loving people. 
loving people, different ways you can love people, all kinds of ways you can love people. Third, be a good example by your life, by your lifestyle, by your character, by your conduct. And fourthly, then, share your testimony. Tell them how God, through Christ, through the Spirit, saved you. And fifthly, then, share the gospel. And sometimes with people, we say, I need to share the gospel right away. That's fine. I'm not saying you can't do that. But I would say these other things are very important. Pray. Pray every day that God uses you for the gospel. Then as you have opportunity to love people. I'll give you three little quick stories from this last week. It was yesterday. I was at Winn-Dixie getting some food and had to buy some food for the burritos. And the cashier there, she was checking me out, and she was fast. Man, she was fast, this young lady. She I said, man, you're really fast. You're really good. She said, yeah, I just want to get people out of here. And so, so I said, then the, then the next thing I said, you, you know, she's young. Says, you school, you student? She says, yeah, I plan to be a nurse. I said, really, that's good. My mom and two sisters were nurses. So we're just making small talk. We're talking. This talk took three or four minutes. And the next thing I said, what's your name? Victoria. Oh, that's a really good name. You know, Victoria, you know, it comes from, it comes from the Greek word Nike. She says, Really? So that's all we did. That's we just talked. But, you know, she left happy. I left happy, you know. And, and so I'll, I'll tell Marcia about Victoria, and she'll go there. She goes shopping more than I do, and, and maybe she'll take a tract or a, a blog card to give to her. But that's just one little story. The second one is David. This is Wednesday night. The, the neighbors across the street moved out. The renters moved out, and David's a landlord in order for 20-plus years and stuff. And so he was busy one day, and I could see there's two big garbage things filled up with all kinds of stuff. He was cleaning things out of the house. So I, I thought, you know, I don't have any garbage I'm taking out tomorrow morning. You know, maybe he needs another garbage can. So I, I went over and knocked on the door and says, hey, you need a garbage can? He says, man, you're an angel. I don't know what called me an angel. But, but, but he was so thankful that I thought of him. And, had, and then, I, then that next day, there was out in the morning, man, it was full. It was heavy. He had stuffed my garbage can all this stuff. See, just think of that way. The third example is a couple weeks ago, my wife and I went went to a place called Woodfire Pizza over there in Bears. We met a lady, and she was a young lady, and she's from Ukraine, and and, and, and it was, she told us the difficulty. And she was there in one of the places called Kharkiv. You might have heard about it. It's northeast Ukraine. It's one of the most places bombed out like crazy, and she had seen death, of course, and She's by herself, her brother and her mom are in Germany now, but she's like nobody knew, didn't know anybody. So we had a good time there talking, had our pizza and our salad and gave her a good tip, you know, and then I thought, you know, we've got to get her the Bible. So Marcia went online, she's the one that shops for things online, and she got her a Ukrainian Bible and a little New Testament too. So this last week I just dropped it off, you know. So you do what you can do and pray for, pray for Jane, Okay. You do what you can do. You love people. I'm just talking about loving people. And every week, I believe you have opportunities to do that. And, and then as God gives opportunity, share the gospel with them one way or the other. If we continue on to the next section, Luke chapter 23, 39 to 43. You know this story. I, I'm sure you do. 39 to 43, but boy, it is instructive. 39, 43, one of the criminals who was, were hanged there was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself on us. But the other one answered and rebuked him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Great little story. Let me explain just some key thoughts from here. First of all, this really helps us to understand the gospel. There's two thieves here. 
both criminals who are being crucified with Christ. What can we learn? First, these criminals are not just criminals in the sight of God, but more seriously and more significantly, they are criminals, they are sinners in the sight of God. That's the first thing to understand. Secondly, is, is the first criminal, the one who got saved, he's the one who understood justice. He understood that he deserved to be punished for his life, for his sins. He understood that, that he was getting what he deserved, but the other one didn't, not at all. Next point, the first criminal feared God. He was humble. He was broken. The second one was proud, didn't fear God, hurling abuse at Jesus, mocking him. Next point, the first criminal knew Jesus was innocent. I don't know how he knew this. I don't understand what was going on in his heart. But he knew that he was an innocent person, that he had done nothing wrong. Here, he's the criminal. This other guy's a criminal, and we're getting what we deserve. This Jesus shouldn't be being hanging like this, shouldn't be crucified like this. And, and, and so he, I believe he, he has to understand he's Messiah. And, and maybe he had heard about Jesus. I can't help that he had heard about Jesus. Maybe he was in, in synagogue school, you know, the Sunday school for the little kids in the synagogue, you know, and maybe he heard all about the Messiah. But, but he knew he was, and he believed in him. That's, that's what happened. First criminal understood that Jesus was the king, not just an innocent man. This is the king. He says, I want to be in your kingdom. So you can see that, boy, this God is working in the, in the mind and heart of this, this criminal. The first criminal repented, was sorry that he sinned. Now, it doesn't actually say that he was repenting here, but by what he said, it's clear that he repented. Again, in all these little gospel stories, we don't get all the details, but we get some of the details, and we get some of the details right here about this individual. And the second criminal, of course, was unrepentant. He was a hardened criminal. He was a hardened sinner. Next, we see God's grace towards the rep- criminal who repented of a sin because it was on that very day, not long after this happened, that he died and he went to be with Jesus in heaven, that very, very day. And it's obvious that this man was saved not by works, but completely and totally by the grace of God. And this little story is maybe the best in the Bible on that truth. You're not saved by what you do. You're saved by the grace of God. Because here he is. He had a life of sin, this criminal. There is on the cross. I mean, what could he do? What kind of good works could he do? He couldn't do anything. This is classic. I always remember this story. It's the grace of God. That's what it is. This verse, I love it. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Next, we see God's justice toward the one who didn't repent. For that day, this sinner died. (laughs) The one goes to be with Jesus, and the other one goes the other way, to hell. That's what happened. And since that time, I mean, this is real. This is a real story about two real people or two criminals. One saved, one lost, one stayed lost, and he's been punished ever since that time back about 2,000 years ago. Really sobering, sobering. We have this true and amazing story then. Here's Jesus dying on the cross. It is dying to pay for the sins of all people who would believe in him, which means you and, you and me. When he was on that cross, he was paying for your sins, for my sins. That's what he was doing. And he was paying for the sins of this one criminal that got saved. And to think that not long after that, that same day, Jesus then met up with this person in paradise. They met up together, and here Jesus had just finished paying for his sins, and now they're together. It's just classic story salvation. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. We continue. Let's go now to John, the Gospel of John. And, and I have to admit, I, 
I went pretty quickly last week through many stories in Luke, and now I'm in John, and it seems like I'm starting to slow up. Maybe the speed of a turtle, I don't know. I want to. There's so much. John is so rich. It is so rich with the gospel. Not so many stories, but more teaching about what the gospel means. We start off in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is talking about Jesus, of course. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verses 9 to 11. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Many things we need to look at here. We read that Jesus is God in the flesh. Amazing, that, that truth itself, the incarnation, that Jesus was God in the spirit, and then he became God in the flesh as well, both God and man. It's it's just, it's absolutely wonderful, true for us. And so he came to the world because he wanted people to know who he was. And they also wanted people to know that he wanted to save sinners. It says that he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Jesus came to his own people. They didn't receive him. The word receive can be translated as to take hold of, to obtain, to grasp. It's not some simple thing. You're really understanding things. You're taking hold of. You're, you're grasping. The, the Jews in general did not grasp the truth about Jesus. Did not understand that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. It says they didn't welcome him, which means they didn't embrace him. They didn't receive him gladly. They, they really, truly didn't love him. Okay, Of course they you know, the big crowds and the miracles and the free food. They like that. I mean, people like that here in Tampa, all over the world. They, oh, what's going on? What's the latest thing today? And, and going to some event. And so many of these people are just going to some event. Hey, Jesus, come. Let's see what he says. Let's see what he does and see some new miracle. And so people didn't really love him. Therefore, most Jews back then didn't believe in him and didn't get saved. That's what happened. And, and you, of course, know this, that, you know, many of the Jews... During that Passover week, and there were Jews there from really all that part of the world. It was, a, it was a huge crowd of people. But you know what they said on that Friday? They said, crucify him. And they didn't love him. They wanted him dead. I mean, it's, it's really, really sad. Verses 12 and 13. I'm going to read these again. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And so some, minority, received Jesus and believed in his name and were saved. I've said this before, but it's important to understand this word name. This word name refers to the totality, refers to the totality of Christ's being. Three aspects here. Who he is, his identity, what he's like, his character, and thirdly, his purpose what he does. That's it. That's his name. I, I was just reading Psalm 7, the last verse of Psalm 7 says, I will sing, sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. And I was thinking about our singing, because we have good singing. We're excellent. I love the songs this morning. We have great singing. And, and that's what we're singing, the praise of the name. 
the character of God, the purpose of God. All those songs had talked about the, this, the name of the Lord, and we're singing the praise of the name of the Lord Most High. That's what we're doing. And so a person who believes in Jesus' name is believing who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And he's believing what he does, that by his death and resurrection, then a person can be saved. They're, they're believing those two things at least, who he is and what he does. Those who received him and believed in his name became children of God. That's, isn't that a wonderful phrase? I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. They were no longer sinners. They no longer children of the devil, but children of God. That's what happened to you that day that you got saved. Whether you know the date or not, you became a child of God. Verse 12, we read about man's responsibility, that he is to receive Christ. He is to believe in his name, to trust Jesus, to save him from his sins. Jonah 2, verse 8, maybe it's verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord. The same thought is conveyed in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9, 10, 11, around there. Salvation is of the Lord, period. All of salvation. Steve even mentioned this morning. All of salvation, the drawing, the bringing, it's all of the Lord. It's all of God. Salvation is of the Lord. But verse 13 talks about God's sovereignty. It is not a work of man, but indeed it is a work of God. We read that a person isn't saved by his blood. What that means, you're not saved because you're born in a certain family. You're not saved because you have a certain race or certain ethnicity. Then it says we're, we're, a person isn't saved by his own flesh. All that means is by your own good works. Not saved by what you can do at all. And again, that's how most of the world thinks. We learn that a person isn't saved by the will of man, that is, by some man-made system, by some man-made rituals and rules, by going to church or going to the synagogue or going to wherever. Or you're not saved by what man can do for you. I mentioned the example a few weeks back about the Catholic Church, and, and they light their candles and they pray for the dead. That doesn't do anything for salvation. Not a thing. Not a thing. And so God is the one who saves us. That's what we have to understand. It's by the will of God. God chooses to save people. God foreknows who will be his, and he calls them, works in their heart, and then saves them. That's what he does. And salvation from beginning to end, then, is a work of God, and apart from God, no person is saved. Not at all. Not at all. I like this verse. We read this, I believe, a week or two back. Luke 18, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. So you think about people that you know that aren't saved and who are, aren't saved, and you know they're not saved. All things are possible with God. That verse is given in the context of that rich young ruler who wasn't saved. Let's continue in John, verse 29. John 1, 29. One, one verse here. Next day, this is John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a great phrase, great truth. It conveys a few things for us here. First, Jesus, first John told people that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Back then people understood the sacrificial system, that lambs were being sacrificed to make atonement for sin. They understood that. But Jesus was a permanent sacrifice. And he was like a lamb. And he's one that he sacrificed his own life. Yes, they killed him and they wanted to kill him, but Jesus gave himself up. He could have been out of there. He could have been rescued at any second by who knows how many angels. He could have called out to his father, Father, I'm done. I can't do this. He didn't do that. 
He sacrificed his own life. He died to pay for our sins. He died to take away the sins of the people who would believe in him, believe in his name. He forgave the sins of all those who turned from their sin and then turned to him. That verse, Isaiah 53, is so good. This is verse 6 of Isaiah 53. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Isn't that amazing? We've gone the wrong way. Gone the wrong way. God intervened in our life. He stopped us in his tracks. And whether that process took one day or one week or a year or whatever, God changed you and moved you, drew you to himself. And that phrase, he caused, God caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And I just still just boggles my mind. I just blown away. All the sins of all the people that everybody saved, their thoughts, their wrong thoughts, and we have a lot more wrong thoughts than wrong words and wrong deeds, you know that. Our main sins are in our thoughts. All our wrong thoughts, all our wrong words, all our wrong deeds, God caused the iniquity of us all who believe in him to be placed on Christ. What's a wonderful truth. And that's past, present, future, because, you know, we're still alive and we'll still sin a few more times here before we go to heaven, right? All the sins of our entire earthly life placed on Christ. It's so encouraging to see that. Let's continue on, go to John chapter 3. Take the rest of our time on these verses here. This is the Nicodemus story. A lot in here, these first eight verses. And again, I'm going rather quickly, just summing up some important points here. John 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and, every, and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So here's Nicodemus. He, he, he knew that Jesus was somebody special. He comes to him by night. He's got a prominent position. He's a Pharisee. He's part of the Sanhedrin, the, the council. And so he was respected. He was well-known. He comes to Jesus at night. He heard about all these miracles, and he might have actually heard his teaching. Um, and so here's God, and he's calling Nicodemus. Because what we, as you read this story again, like the one in, in Luke 19, it was Zacchaeus, it's clear that God was working in his heart. He didn't just sort of come there. God had to move in his heart because if they found him out of the Pharisees, found him, well, he, he, who knows, he might have been a dead man. But he was there because God was drawing him to himself. Well, the people says people need to be born again. That's what we talk. That's one of the main things. What does it mean to be born again? First of all, it means this. It means that a person is born physically, born of water, and he's born of spiritually. He's born of the Spirit. That's what we understand. He's born of the Spirit. Got to be born twice, physically and then spiritually. That's what has to happen. Secondly, a person who's physically born doesn't cause, doesn't bring about his own birth. You understand that's a simple, basic truth. Did you bring about your own birth? Did you cause it from beginning to end? No. 
I mean, your parents were quite involved in that process, right? And the mother, particularly, right? You know that. But ultimately, and we know this from Psalm 139, you know the verses there, that God was working in the womb of a mother, creating that baby, that process, that nine-month process. And I think of this because our daughter, she's like seven months now. God's doing it. God is the one that saves us. That, that's, that's what it is. God causes a pe- person to be born again. No person can save himself. He's, he's born again. He's saved by the power of the Spirit working in his heart. And like the wind, we can't see the Spirit's work in the heart of those who believe. We can't see it, but it's happening. It's a wonderful truth. How you, you think about this with people, whether it's your own life or others, you see your people, your family, and God's working in their hearts, and we just can't see it. Turn to Titus 3. We talked some about the work of the Spirit. We probably should talk more about the work of the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is so involved in our lives. We oftentimes focus on God and Christ, but the work of the Spirit is is important that we see that. And it talks about this in Titus. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 6 says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So it's by the power of the Spirit. Always be thankful that God has given you the Spirit, that you're born of the Spirit, and you're to be led by the Spirit, and he's in you now. Uh, you know, you're tired or weak or things are hard, you got the Spirit. God gives you the Spirit. And we say, we say that God never leaves you. That's because the Spirit never leaves you. If you're a true believer, the Spirit never leaves you. He is always, always in with you. So we're talking about being born again. The third point I want to make about being born again is we know that a birth takes place at a certain time, a certain day, right? Which we call for ourselves, our physical birth. It's our birthday. We all understand this. And a person who's spiritually born again has a birthday too. Whether you realize when this birth happened, I don't know when I was saved. A lot of people do, some people don't. Maybe more people don't than whatever. That's not the main point. The point is there's a point in time when your person is born again, a special day, a special time, and he's saved and he's justified, becomes a child of God. That's it. It's this point in time that we're saying. It's key to see that. Key to see that. Many religions, and I mentioned this a few weeks back, believe what's called progressive salvation, that you're saved over a period of time, and a lot of people believe that this period of time is your entire life. I grew up and I was taught that I wouldn't know if I was saved until I died. That's how I, that's what I believe. And so I kept doing all these good works, thinking, okay, I'm going to die someday and hopefully I'll go to heaven. And as the church taught, after I had gone to purgatory for a little while, and purged away remaining sins. That's what I was taught. That's how I thought. That's why there's little prayer cards, you know, I get little holy cards, they call them, and all these prayers. Say this, say this prayer, and you get seven years off of purgatory. Wow. That was, I, I prayed those, and I'd pray again. And I got 56 years off that one. That's great. And I'd do another one. And it just, it's, it's not true. Not true. This isn't what God says. There is no progressive salvation. God saves a person during his life on earth at a point in time. If that person isn't saved during his life on earth at a point in time, that he's not saved at all and he's going to hell. That's it. Black and white. So clear. That's what this born again. This is so good. Verses are so good. Okay, what else do we see? People who are born again enter into the kingdom of God. 
they enter into the kingdom of God. I want to sum up a few points about the kingdom of God. I think it's a subject that we don't talk about enough, and maybe I should teach in this more as well. In fact, that verse that I mentioned, the, the first verse I mentioned was this one, Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And I believe what he was saying at that time. People might have different opinions about this. Is that, was that kingdom mean, the physical kingdom of God's at hand, that he's going to start his kingdom? Maybe. But I think particularly he was saying in the context, the kingdom of God's at hand. You repent and believe, and then you're a member of the kingdom. That's what I believe he was saying, a spiritual kingdom. That's what I believe he was saying. But, but what's interesting is now we live in this time where Christ could come back in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, whatever, where the physical kingdom of God is imminent. Okay, It's really, really getting close. But a few points here about the kingdom of God. First of all, God is always the king, always sovereign, always reigning over the world. That's, that's the big major point. No matter what's going on in this world or what's happening in the past or today or the future, God is always a king. Turn to Psalm 145. And there's, a, there's a, a few key verses like this, and I've read this one before, but it sums it up. Psalm 145, verse 13 says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. One way, verse, verse 12, I mean. To make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That's the key. So the overall, God reigns. He's always a king. All things are still always under his hands. Secondly, at this time, at this time, God through Jesus Christ and the church is building the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom of God. That's, that's what's taking place right now. He's building the spiritual kingdom of God. I'm going to probably write on this in the next few weeks in a blog post, but sometimes I really get tired about what's going on in this world, and I say, God, bring some justice. But you know what he's shared with me is the lesson of Jonah, because you know the, lesson of jo- the main lesson of Jonah, right? Is he was supposed to go preach to the Ninevites, and he didn't want to go because he knew all these Ninevites were pretty evil people. And he was hoping that Nineveh would be destroyed. God had mercy. <laughs> it was a revival. It was a huge, huge, huge revival in one of the most wicked cities of the world. The point is this, is God is, this time is building his spiritual kingdom. And you ought first to pray for people get saved. That's what you first pray for. You can pray for justice. That's fine. Secondarily, that's the lesson of Luke 18. That's the lesson of 2 Peter 3. That's the lesson of James 5. All those passage there talk about how you need to be patient it says be patient until the lord's coming and pray for the saved to get lost because clearly christ will only come back when that last person to be saved is saved becomes a member of the kingdom so he's building a spiritual kingdom if you're born again then you're spiritually speaking a member of god's kingdom what's interesting in john chapter three there's two words it says two words to think about one it says you're born again you you enter into the kingdom of god once you're saved once you're born again right away you're a member of the kingdom as it says in colossians chapter 1 13 and 14 you're transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son transferred instantaneously immediately that's what happens but then the next one says if you're born again you see the kingdom of God. You, you first got to enter it, be saved, be born again, and then you see it. You're there. You experience it, you see. 
And so even as Christians here, what should be happening in our lives is we are seeing and experiencing the kingdom of God in a spiritual way. So it's important that you see this, you understand this here. And being a member of God's kingdom means that you're royalty, that you're very special, you're very important in the eyes of God. It says in Revelation chapter 4, he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever. He has made us to be a kingdom. You know, we talk about royalty, and I think you're all aware this is last year. Uh, there's King Charles and, well, Queen Elizabeth, of course, and then she passed away. Then there's King Charles. And, and, and some people are so enamored, and I, I, not me, but I'm not saying you can't watch some of those shows and what's going on, you know, the pageantry, you know, the, the formality and all this stuff with royalty. But just think about it. I mean, Queen Elizabeth, I believe, was a believer. My, my son talked to a pastor over there who actually personally met with her, had lunch, and really believed she was a, a Christian. Not so sure about King Charles. The point is, you are royalty. You're, you're much more important than anybody who's in any kind of royalty around the world. So what? When you look, so what? That's a physical thing. But you are royalty. You are important. You are special. And that's how we need to think. God's made you to be a kingdom and a priest. Two words, priest to serve and worship the Lord. Kingdom to be ones who are ruling, ruling with him. So we talk about now Christ is building this spiritual kingdom during this church age. This church age will come to an edge, end not that long from now. But I want to mention the three different phases of God's kingdom. We need to see this. First, at this time, I said, as I said before, God is building his spiritual kingdom through his work in the church, gospel being preached, disciples being made. In the age to come, the thousand-year kingdom age, Christ will physically and spiritually be building his kingdom. He'll be ruling over this earth in a physical way, and he'll be spiritually working in the hearts of believers. Both will be taking place. In a world where there's still sinners, he is going to be physically and spiritually building his kingdom. The prayer I said before, Matthew chapter 6, where says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're talking about here. That's the kingdom age to come. And it's good to pray that. I mentioned before we need to pray for God to have mercy in souls. Yes, also pray for his kingdom to come. Because we want to see Christ rule on this earth in, in a righteous way. We really want to see that, but pray that. So that's the a, that's a second point, would Christ be perfectly ruling? It says in... Psalm 47, 2, the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king over the whole earth. And the thing I've said this before, and it saddens me, so many people are just lacking in understanding the truth. Oh, when I die, I'm going to heaven. That's all they know. And they may be believers. There's so much more. You're entering into the kingdom of God, spiritually speaking. There'll be a time when you reign with Christ over this earth. Physically speaking, these are the truths. The kingdom of God, Important truth, very, very important truth. So there's this present church age spiritual kingdom that's being built. There's the kingdom to come, the thousand-year millennial kingdom. Then after that, that's the eternal kingdom. First Corinthians 15 talks about this God and Christ ruling, reigning together, and we then are reigning with Christ, a kingdom. I mean, and we don't know what it's going to be like. We have a few clues. I wrote my blog post that came out yesterday that will be rewarded. And I really believe the rewards we receive relate directly to our work and involvement, our part in the coming kingdom ages. I really believe that. 
how we're rewarded relates to serving. Because you remember the one story, Matthew 25, and Jesus said, hey, the first one, hey, you're going to be over 10 cities. Maybe this is Luke 19. You're going to be over 10 cities. Hey, you did good. You're going to be over five cities. What does that mean? I think that's literal. God gives us responsibilities, not just sitting around playing a harp. That's not it at all. I mean, you might play the harp. Okay, I'm not saying you won't. But, but the point is, God has work for us to do, and you're going to be, it's going to be great work, and you'll love it. And it won't be any sweat at all. It'll be easy to do for the Lord, and you'll love it. And so we talked some about the gospel and salvation, and we need to understand what he's done for us. Next week, we'll be talking about that three, John 3, 16 passage, and there's so much in there. There's so much another rich section we continue on through the Gospel of John. But I, I, I just pray that and ask God that will help you because, again, understanding the truths of the Gospel and our salvation is, is so important for then how we spiritually grow. And as, as we sing, as we sing praises to the Lord, our heart should be filled. I mean, I think the last song we sing is, it, is that the first song? To God be the glory? I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. Because of all that we're talking about, to God be the glory, right? That's that's where it's at. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We bless you for your great love and kindness to us. And this gospel, I, I pray, Lord, because it's by your spirit, it's by your word that you help us to understand these truths. You sink them deep into our heart and there then be more motivated and strengthened and encouraged and more loving you and thanking you and trusting you and praising you and giving you the glory. So that's, that's our prayer that we understand the truth of the gospel message, that it becomes real in our heart and it's, out, it's, it's, it's lived out in our lives. That's what we ask for each one here. If there's ones here who aren't saved or ones listening on who aren't saved, God, you draw them to yourself. God, you can do the impossible, and you do the impossible all the time. And so we pray that. But they pray then, too, just use us as your workers. So you have given each of us here jobs to do task to do. You have people that you want us to, to, to love and talk to and share the gospel with. You have people you want us to build into, to encourage, to pray for. All of us here as believers are gifted with certain abilities and talents to use those as we read in the gospels, Matthew 25. We're to use those for your work. We're to be good stewards. We all have time and we all have money. We all have abilities. We all have a spiritual gifts. God, help us to be faithful to to serve you in the way that you want. But, but thank you again for this church, for everyone here. Lord, I want to pray particularly for Carol Hardy's having surgery tomorrow morning early. I pray, God, you give uh, success, uh, no more, uh, no more uh, cancer. Uh, the the, the th- what is it, thyroid? No, the other one. The other word. Uh, it's not affecting anything else, Lord. I just pray it would go well and give the doctors your grace. Pray for Bruce, Lord, him, and give him the grace and peace. And I pray for recovery uh, because so much is recovery. It's a surgery that takes place, and it's a long surgery that you just help that whole recovery process. And just pray for all of us here again. Some of us here have health issues. Just help us to be strong and just keep going by your grace. That's what we ask. But thank you again for your great love for us. I want to pray, too, for Bethel, for, for their church and their lives, and pray for this transition process of transferring the ownership of the property them as we work on the lease and the legal. So we spent, what, a few hours the other night just talking about this as elders and help us to continue on and, and bring this about in your time, we pray. Thank you again for your love for us, and indeed we give you the glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.